0: Hello, I'm Leslie Ann Knight and welcome to Just Talking Musicals, the podcast and YouTube show where we discuss all things from Broadway and beyond. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to join the conversation. Just Talking Musicals, Musicals with you. Hello, I'm Leslie Ann Knight and welcome to season three of Just Talking Musicals. Coming up this season, we've got the stories behind how two iconic Broadway shows, Oklahoma and Annie Get Your Gun, actually got to see the light of day in the 1940s. And we have a special season three interview for you with Broadway and West End actor, Mr. Corey English. We'll be talking about how he got started in the business, some of the iconic choreographers, directors, and performers he's worked with, and his advice for aspiring young professionals. On March the 31st, 2020, the Playbill website ran a feature celebrating 77 years since the musical Oklahoma first opened its doors at the St. James Theatre on Broadway. On January 19, 2020, Daniel Fisher's Tony award-winning revival of the musical completed its Broadway run at the Circle in the Square, where it had been running for nearly a year. Just a few weeks later, in fact, around the same date as Oklahoma's 77th anniversary, the whole of Broadway turned silent as the 2020 global pandemic brought shows to a months-long close, unprecedented in Broadway history. The stories which are yet to be told from this period in time are doubtless ones of struggle, and yet to look back and consider the global conditions out of which Oklahoma arrived in 1943 give us equal pause for thought. In the early 1940s, the world, as everyone knew it, had been thrown into total disarray as millions of people were caught up in a grim war for the second time since the turn of the 20th century. Europe had found itself lurching to war as Adolf Hitler's forces invaded Poland on September the 1st, 1939, leaving the powers of Great Britain and France with no choice but to declare war on Germany. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's longed for pact for peace in our time lay in tatters as the war gained momentum throughout the long months of 1940 and the bombardment of Britain's shores took its toll in a fearsome German airstrike that was to become known as the Battle of Britain. Across the Atlantic, America had been reluctant to join its allies following the wholesale massacre of World War I and the devastating economic crash of the Great Depression, which had left millions of Americans homeless and unemployed. But on the 7th December 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt found it impossible to delay another moment when the Japanese launched a devastating surprise attack on the US Naval Base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. America was suddenly very much at war. American car makers and manufacturers set to and tailored their talents to producing armoured vehicles and weapons of war. And Hollywood, just to keep everyone's spirits up, went into overdrive with patriotic war films about bravery and good spirits. Just as in Europe, the war brought rationing and blackouts to the citizens of America, and in New York, thousands of troops swarmed the streets waiting for their call to action, whether in the Pacific or Europe. On Broadway, the depression-wracked years of the 1930s had forced some theatres to relinquish their noble aims of quality entertainment and, in order to stay open, opted for the more obvious allure of burlesque and the surefire, cheap cheap-to-run attractions of vaudeville. In 1941, theatre critic Brooks Atkinson at the New York Times described it as the worst season in 20 years, and Variety magazine announced that of 66 new shows that season, only six were hits. The war, quite simply and understandably, affected everyone's mood. It discouraged audiences, rattled producers, and not even the drama critics' circle or the Pulitzer committees even bothered to make any awards. But the disillusionment of war soon sparked an inspiring enterprise on Broadway that was to raise spirits and support the needs of servicemen on leave. Run by the American Theatre Wing War Service, in the basement of the 44th Street Theatre, loaned out rent-free by theatre magnate Lee Schubert, the space which was formerly known as the Little Club, became known as the Stage Door Canteen. The object of the exercise was to provide refreshment and entertainment, and it attracted the talent and benevolence of hundreds of theatre people, from serving food to providing entertainment, music and dancing. Food and drink were provided free with caterers and restaurants donating food and waitresses and hostesses volunteering to work there. Only servicemen were admitted. There was strictly no alcohol, the preferred drink was milk and the doors closed tight shut at midnight. And within a year the little basement club known as the Stage Door Canteen had admitted over half a million servicemen from all over the world who had in turn been entertained by the likes of Marlene Dietrich, Gertrude Lawrence, Grace Moore, Tallulah Bankhead, and Ethel Merman, and it was all for free. The Stage Door Canteen drew help from all walks of life, and it seems everyone gave what they could, whether it was time or money. A name synonymous with us Broadway fans today was Oscar Hammerstein II, and he and his wife Dorothy were no strangers to the Stage Door Canteen and the work of the American Theatre Wing. After his groundbreaking work on Showboat with Jerome Kern in 1927, Hammerstein's path to Broadway legend hadn't been a smooth one, with his own fair share of theatrical flops and near misses that in hindsight make us mere mortals see the value in never giving up. Having spent a a careful year of concentrated work on music in the air with Jerome Kern in 1932, they were rewarded with the feel-good factor of a big hit. He was to discover how elusive success really can be, as he was not to strike it lucky again for another 11 years. In 1931, the Theatre Guild presented a play on Broadway called Green, Grow the Lilacs by poet, screenwriter and playwright, Lynn Riggs. It was set around the turn of the last century in the land of his childhood in the southwest, better known as Old Indian Territory, and it drew on his childhood memories of growing up in the territory before it was split into states. He said of his play, the intent has been solely to recapture in a kind of nostalgic glow the great range of mood which characterised the old folk songs and ballads I used to hear in my Oklahoma childhood. And it ran for just 64 performances. And so in 1942, Oscar Amsteyn was 46 years old. He'd written some hit shows and he'd experienced the sinking feeling of a theatrical flop and hearing his critics say he'd had his day. In fairness, the 1930s had been a tough time for anyone trying to make their way in any walk of life. The Great Depression had seen to that. But he had discovered one thing for certain. He was at his best when he gave himself time to develop an idea. And he'd discovered this not only when he and Jerome Kern had worked on Showboat together, but also when he experimented with modernising Bizet's opera Carmen and renaming it Carmen Jones. He started working on it when he had been at his lowest ebb, and it was destined to be a triumphant success, but not before he'd written his next show. That was in early 1942, and Hammerstein had enjoyed the experience of writing without the usual pressure or deadlines, and now was, he was looking for something new again. He and Jerome Kern met up in California that May. They were always talking about working together again, but it had to be the perfect thing. So he talked to Jerome Kern about another idea he had of turning the Lynn Riggs play, Green Grow the Lilacs, into a musical. He was excited by the characters, they were well drawn, with real energy buzzing away in the undercurrent of their daily lives. But Jerome just wasn't keen. The way he saw it, the play had only lasted a few weeks on Broadway, and in his eyes, the second act was hopeless and had a murder in it. Sadly, it wasn't the right show for Jerome Kern. But Hammerstein kept the faith, and almost as soon as he had got back to New York, he had a call from the composer Richard Rodgers, who wanted to talk to him about a play the Theatre Guild had put on years ago that they were thinking about turning into a musical, and it was called Green Grey the Lilacs. Rodgers asked, I wonder if we could get together. Why don't you read it and see if you like it? I don't have to read it. I know it, and I'm crazy about it. I'd love to do this with you, came Hammerstein's delighted reply. Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hamstein had never worked together before, but Hamstein knew that Rodgers' 20-year partnership with Lawrence Hart was all but over. Hart's drinking bouts had reached alarming proportions, which led him to disappear with no notice, forget appointments and miss deadlines. The once charming, gifted lyricist just wasn't really interested anymore, and he turned down Rodgers' offer to work on the week's play. On July the 23rd, 1942, the New York Times reported, The Theatre Guild announced yesterday that Richard Rodgers, Lawrence Hart and Oscar Hammerstein II will soon begin work on a musical version of Lynn Riggs' folk play, Green Grow the Lilacs. But in truth, Hart had already dropped out of the project completely, and Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein started to learn how to work together. Right, that's it for this episode. Coming up, We'll be looking at how Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein started their work together as our new Broadway musical writing team and what it was that made this musical so very different and new. I'm Lesley-Anne Knight. You can find earlier episodes and actually see me talking on our Just Talking Musicals YouTube channel and we'd love it if you subscribe and follow along with the conversation on social media as well. Just Talking Musicals, Musicals with you.